ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Recent horrifying headlines continue to catch my eye. Perhaps they've caught yours too. Natasha Mitchell here with Big Ideas. Welcome. In Perth, a woman is lit on fire, 40% of her body burnt. In Sydney, a woman is found dead before police can respond to a call in time. In Melbourne, an ex-Olympian pleads guilty to harassing an ex-girlfriend. Why do some men turn to deadly violence to deal with anger or difficult emotions? What are the root causes? The thing is that you can't turn off movies, you can't turn off games, you can't turn off books. There is an appetite for violence, for, for violent entertainment. It's not just an Australian thing, it's it's a world thing. So firstly, you have to grapple with that, the impact of um, absorbing that kind of stuff. Violence is so complex. I don't think that it... It's something that you can erase from a culture, but I certainly think that if we have opportunity to talk about it and to talk about it honestly in all cultures and in all ways, then maybe we can reduce the perpetration of it. Journalist and femicide researcher Sherelle Moody. On Big Ideas today, an uncomfortable but vital event from the group Sisters in Crime, Boys Behaving Badly and What to Do About It. Sherelle is the creator of the Red Heart campaign. You can view that while you're listening today. Just head to australianfemicidewatch.org. It is the most moving online memorial to women and children lost to violence, including two young girls who were murdered by Sherelle's stepfather. You'll also hear today from forensic psychologist Ahona Guha, who works with perpetrators of violence, RMIT Professor of Law Bronwyn Naylor, and lawyer and director of the Centre for Innovative Justice Elena Campbell, who kicks off the event. The title is, of course, an interesting provocation and a reminder to us that while we're talking about an incredibly serious and tragic issue that is pervasive and seemingly endemic in the community, we've had a struggle to, as a society, to be able to either recognise it effectively, recognise the severity and even find language to talk about it properly. So when we're grappling with notions of masculinity and notions of gender roles, we tend to default to the sense of, particularly in the relation to areas of gendered violence which are not necessarily classified as criminal offences, we find it a bit easier to talk about those. But when we're talking about patterns of behaviour that don't necessarily fall within the criminal law, and we've sort of imposed a range of structures around them that we'll talk about later, we tend to default to less punitive language, which is useful in some contexts, but in others it, it tends to function as a bit of an excuse. And when you combine it with that narrative or that trope around boys will be boys, of course, we're then stuck with a sense of, well, what can we do about it? Almost as if there is nothing that can be done when we're talking about boys behaving badly. So it's an interesting way to kind of really crystallise the challenge that we're discussing, I think, because it's about trying to make the shift towards our community, really grappling with the severity of a really, really long-term sustained issue, finding a way to do it in a, um, 
in a way that seems hopeful and solution focused because it's so enormous that sometimes I think that's why people turn away and and default to some of that really simplistic and um, language that tends to make excuses. I just have a little something to add here. When I first looked at the title, I wasn't sure what we were going to be talking about. And I think that that's essentially some of the issues within this field. We clump a lot of violence together in a broad basket. And I wasn't sure whether we are talking about sexual offending, sexual violence, child exploitation material, child abuse, intimate partner violence, other types of family violence. We often clump all of these types of violence together and they are very different behaviours. We treat some of them really seriously. So for instance, sexual violence I think is one that we probably do well in terms of how seriously we treat it. Intimate partner violence, we are trying to get our act together. I'm slowly trying to find a slightly more hope-based approach but Again, I think difficult to have such a broad-based conversation and maybe one of the areas in which we are falling down when we talk about men's behaviour because there are so many arms to bad behaviour. Yes, thank you. So we've lumped them together in the title, haven't we? And we we are perhaps, as um, Elena was saying, setting up an existing, a pre-existing excuse, which is the boys will be boys, something like that. Cheryl, could you talk to us a bit about the way this narrative or these narratives play out or are developed, perhaps given different levels of weight um, in the media? Um, Yeah, for sure. I think daily we see news reports about boys behaving badly and often those boys behaving badly are in the public eye, so there might be footy players or usually um, related to sports. Sometimes they're actors, you know, sometimes they're singers and we, we see a lot of headlines around it might be gossip, it might be, you know, someone with a troubled past someone who you know just snapped was pushed to the edge by mental health problems or problems at home the thing is that when we publish stories that are focused on um, the perpetrator of a crime you know sort of snapping or being a good bloke until this moment until something pushed them over their edge when we focus like we we report from a perpetrator driven perspective, we lose sight of the victim and we lose sight of the um, trauma that the victim suffers. And if they're killed, the trauma, the family suffers. So for instance, a teacher was killed overseas very recently and one major media outlet, the Daily Mail, ran headlines, a series of headlines, looking at how her role as a career-driven woman, how her success pushed um, the man to kill her and and to kill himself and that, you know, really those headlines were, were basically taking away the responsibility from the person who committed the crime and putting the, the responsibility for the woman's death on her own shoulders, which I think, you know, doesn't help. If we're running articles like that, if we're not reporting from a victim-centred perspective, we are basically saying to people that it's acceptable for these crimes to happen and that there's always an excuse, but the excuse is not the perpetrator's own actions. And that definitely feeds into the boys will be boys. Um, You know, we're basically saying that their gender predetermines their behaviour and there's nothing we can do about that. 
Yeah, so one of the things that we've noted, and I think that we've we've sort of noted in some of the, the lead up to this session, was that there has been a significant amount of work being done um, in terms of provision of supports for victims of male violence, which is appropriate, the provision of refuges, the additional funding for refuges, for providing places of safety, and so on. But that also has a tendency to take away the focus from who's doing this? I mean, why do we need to have all this funding for refuges and support systems when we're not, we want to know what is actually happening? Why is it happening? And can we be stopping it? So I, I thought perhaps, Elena, you might want to talk about some of the legal processes, at least, as a starting point that have been designed to respond to men's violence against women and children, to see whether that's an effective response well, I think we've certainly been on a very interesting journey in the legal system over the last 30 or so years when trying to respond to family and domestic violence specifically rather than sexual violence because I absolutely take Ahuna's point that it's a very sort of different or there are, there are complexities and there are nuances there which we might touch on a, a little bit later. And obviously for a very long time feminists were trying to get the legal system's attention because we were trying to basically communicate or address and debunk the idea that this was just a domestic related to the personal or private sphere and that it needed to be brought into the public and the civil sphere and it needed to be responded to by the courts. Because the nature of family and domestic violence and particularly intimate partner violence and coercive control is so kind of patterned and so complex and so nuanced, not all of it falls within the criminal justice sphere. So what we did and have done across many jurisdictions is develop systems with various different approaches to applying protection orders, which are essentially a civil mechanism which say not about punishing or consequences for previous behaviour, they're about putting a stop to behaviour in the future. That would sort of seem to be a more reasonable, more, more efficient response that is about prevention, it's about protection and it's also responding to and listening to what women will often say is I didn't necessarily want something bad to happen to him, I just wanted the violence to stop. And so that system in theory is promising. But what we've found, and it's the predominant system that is used in Victoria, are not necessarily that way in other jurisdictions, and that's to do with the whole range of the way the codes of practice of police work and various imperatives in the legislation in different jurisdictions. But it's the predominant response here. It's the first thing that happens. And we've designed an incredibly proactive both legislative framework and then all of the policy responses that sit behind it. But what has been the kind of strange inadvertent consequence of this, and there is there are often so often inadvertent consequences of legal responses, is that it is such a default and automatic response now, and there is so little discretion both allowed to decision makers but also expected of decision makers and when I'm talking decision makers I mean initially the police at that first call out and then later the courts that it's become a very cookie cutter throughput model where because surprise surprise the nature of family violence is so widespread and pervasive in Victoria our courts are responding to a huge number of matters 
day in, day out. So a local magistrate's court will easily hear 60 intervention order applications a day. And that varies in different places, but in a busy metro, at a metro location, that's what it'll be down at Melbourne Magistrates easily. And so what that allows is for a colleague a long time ago did a study which estimated that allows for about three minutes of consideration per application, but that was when matters were about uh, sitting in about half the volume. So I'd say we're at about uh, one, one and a half minutes per application. And in that time, a really, really great magistrate will be able to hear and consider a whole range of different pieces of information and make a decision. But because of our churn, because of the um, imperative to get the order in place, get the order in place, that's the kind of become the focus of the system, then we're not thinking about what the order is supposed to do and whether in some cases that response is going to be doing more harm than good. Now, we're here to talk about men's violence, but I want to flag right now, I do a lot of work in relation to young people and women who are in contact with the criminal justice system and a lot of them are in contact with the criminal justice system because of that proactive family violence response that's supposed to be there protecting them. Because there's so little discretion and so little consideration about what is involved, what's happening, who is actually experiencing violence, who is actually using resistance, who is has been a victim survivor through a pattern of violence but might have just been pushing it back at this particular time. It's incredibly complex. There's no room for complexity. So women and young people are getting pushed, funneled through that system as well. And that's one of the things that's seeing our incarceration rates end up there. So it's a big challenge. It's one of the issues with which feminist legal theorists are grappling at the moment. And many feminist legal theorists have you know, who were there 30 years ago arguing for a stronger legal response are now saying, whoops, you know, maybe that wasn't the right way to go. I don't necessarily think that means we go off in another direction, but I think it means that we have a real responsibility to hold our courts and our system to greater account to make sure that they're actually being effective rather than just efficient. So we're saying that there has been a strong legal response, which is great, and there's the volume is extraordinary, as you've said. So we've looked at the legal pro some legal processes, and we can come back to that. But Ahona, you work with um, perpetrators of violence as a psychologist. What's your take on this? What's possible? I think the question of what's possible is a very broad one and a question that I sometimes feel hopeless and a little swamped by. So within my team, I work for a public forensic mental health service. We work with a lot of perpetrators who are typically at the pointy end. So we only see people who are quite high risk. I don't see people who are at the very initial stages, who are, who are at the intervention order stage, and there'll be a large group of people who are actually captured there who stop their behavior, which is fantastic because that's what you want to happen. The people I tend to see are the ones who don't stop their behavior there and the ones who reoffend repeatedly, churning through the system over and over again, sometimes doing a short stint in prison as a bit of a circuit breaker, which obviously works to give the victim survivor a little bit of safety, but then they bounce back out and without appropriate treatment, what we see is people cycling around the system constantly. And I think that's because family violence, and I'm going to make some broad statements here, and I should say that I work 
not through a through a feminist lens, but more through a psychopathological lens, which is where I look a little bit more broadly, not just at the gender dynamics, but also what's what's happening within the the individual. And that's because I'm a psychologist, and that's really my stock and trade. So what we see with some of the more high risk perpetrators, and these are the things that often go unaddressed, are obviously attitudes, beliefs offence-supportive cognition, so things like I'm just going to use violence to get my own way because it works. Personality disorder can be really common. Mental health issues can also be common. And I want to say here very carefully that we don't say mental health causes violence, but it's a factor that can sometimes feed into the cycle of violence. And really important when you're offence mapping, which is really looking at why something happens, to try to identify all of the factors because you can then decide when to intervene. Similarly, substance use is another one. And one of the common things I see across most of the really high high-risk recidivist family violence offenders is a history of trauma, often a history of really significant childhood trauma, more often than not perpetrated by their own fathers within the home, sometimes their own mothers as well, but they have that history of really chronic, complex, cumulative post-traumatic stress disorder sometimes or, or just traits of complex trauma, which can change how you think about yourself and and how you think about the world and, and also your own capacity to form relationships and really manage emotion. Those are the things that we are not picking up, up on. I think those are the things that the court system can't address and that's why we need interventions that are very, very firmly tailored as well as forensically informed. I don't know that we have those yet. So we offer the Men's Behaviour Change Program here in Victoria. I'm not entirely convinced that that targets all of the treatment um, intervention targets appropriately. They also haven't been tested. So we are effectively throwing a lot of money and there have been a tiny, tiny number of papers showing that their effects are at least somewhat ambiguous. I'm not saying that we can offer, offer better, I think we probably need to be trying to think about whether we are appropriately treating at this at this point in time. Because if you don't treat, if you just incarcerate, you just allow the cycle to continue. And that's broadly speaking what I see in my work. I don't know if you have any comment on that, Elena. Yes, I completely agree with what Ahan is saying from, from my observations as well. And the interesting thing about men's behaviour change programs is that they've been given a bad rap but that's because that's they weren't set up the way they were actually designed. So MBCPs emerged from the gendered violence movement in the 70s-ish in the US that was about a community-based coordinated risk management response. So they were never supposed to operate on their own. They were never supposed to operate without a range of different organisations, including statutory arms, being involved. So the Duluth model, which is something that people might have heard of and which is the kind of base, the foundation model on which many programs operate or claim to operate, they do bits of it, not always all of it, is actually about being part of a coordinated system response. But there's a whole lot of reasons why that falls down particularly in the Australian context and the Victorian context. The first is that we're not necessarily connecting them to the corrections or the statutory system. They're part of a community-based 
programs. They're outsourced to community-based organisations. And then what we do is we hold them hostage to a tiny, tiny bit of funding that doesn't allow them to do, that allows them to do this much when they need to be and want to be and say very, very openly, we want to be doing this much. We know we need to be doing working with an, a man individually. We know we need to be providing case management around his mental health and his substance misuse. We know we actually be, need to be addressing his extensive histories of trauma. We can't do all of that in conversational group work sessions once a week for 20 weeks. Now, this 20 weeks is a recent thing, in, recent development in Victoria. You know, the big thing from the Royal Commission in the perpetrator intervention space is that we extended MBCPs from 12 weeks to 20 weeks. How in God's name are you supposed to change a lifetime of attitudes and behaviour and entrenched trauma and everything else that comes with it with an hour and a half to two hours a week, even for 20 weeks? Interestingly, in the US, and there are very, very different responses across different states in the US. But um, in some jurisdictions, it's mandated 52 weeks for what are called batterer intervention programs. But and then there are other kind of responses. And some some jurisdictions in the in the US say, well, we don't we don't think we can't do enough with them. So what we what we believe our program offers is scrutiny. It's that we're just holding him. We're just watching what's happening. Where because he's part of this program, he's not he's not doing as much. He knows that there's a protection order in place. And guess what? The primary clients, and this is the other thing, and then I'll be quiet. The thing that's also not really understood is the primary clients of MBCPs are not the men. It's their family members. That is the reason that they exist. And that is what MBCPs will tell you. But again, policymakers kind of forget that. And we say every through every policy document at every jurisdictional level will say there'll be all these long list of things we need to do and then down the bottom is oh yes perpetrator accountability fund men's behavior change programs but not too much because we don't know whether they work and so they can never get a chance to do what they want to do but it completely leaves out the fact that actually the real pe the people because there's partner and family safety contact work and the real clients are the women and children and that's where the benefit needs to be. And that's where the benefit can be. Even when a man, man drops out, if the program's working with his partner and the children, that might be the first support they've ever experienced and that needs to be recognised. Um, I just wanted to comment here. So what we're hearing today is a really complex and nuanced discussion around a very complex and nuanced situation. The thing is that most of most people, you are very lucky because you're here today, so you're getting a little insight into this. Most people's experience of um, violence and toxic masculinity outside of a personal experience comes from media. And the media doesn't generally have these really complex and nuanced discussions, which is something that we should have. Essentially what we're doing here is today, we're kind of preaching to the converted. So have a look around you, mostly women, mostly women who have either experienced violence or know someone who has experienced violence. We've got a couple of men. Really big kudos to those guys being here, but why aren't there more men? So the thing is that we're just, it's kind of like you're, you're talking to a wall. Firstly, we, are, we have journos who, 
you know, their job is to react to a situation. So if someone is killed, a woman or a man is killed, their job is to go out and do the very traumatic work of reporting from the scene. And that is literally what they do. They report, they journal, they bring back what the scene looks like, they bring back what the people around the scene are saying. So the police, the neighbours, the family of the victim, if the family is there, they're giving you a picture in words of what is happening. Most of these journos do not have access to the kind of training that would help them bring you a more nuanced discussion of violence. And that kind of training, for instance, Our Watch, which is the bipartisan organisation aimed at bringing um, it down uh, violence against women and children, they run a program where they bring in 14 journalists a year and teach them how to report on gendered violence. They literally teach for a year, you learn, but it's only 14 journalists a year. There's hundreds, there's thousands of journalists in this country who are not getting that specialised reporting. So they're not learning about the drivers of violence, they're not learning about the factors of violence. And um, we've already spoken about drivers, we've already spoken about factors a little bit here. They're not hearing from families of people who've been killed, so they're not learning about trauma-centred reporting. They're not learning about the fact that, yes, you can actually speak to um, people who oversee perpetrator programs. You know, they're not being given access to these contacts. The one thing that would make a more nuanced reporting of gendered violence and give regular people out in the world a broader understanding of all of the things behind it would be having journalists who are getting this specialised training. But we just don't have it. Like 14 journos a year out of thousands. It's not enough. And quite often those journos who are doing that training, and I'm one of the people who did the training, they're people who are already writing in this area, so they have some knowledge. So basically that organisation is also preaching to the converted somewhat. Yeah, so I think the media plays a big role in how we see men and the, the role of male violence and toxic masculinity. And unless we kind of work towards a media that provides a much broader and um, more balanced discussion, we won't change those point of views. What I'm thinking is, though, we've still got to deal with the concept of what's news values, what people think is interesting. Um, you know, what do they say? If it bleeds, it leads, or well, those sorts of awful expressions. It may be that some of the journalists will not have as much control over the choices uh, about their particular form of news media as to what is reported. Um, and I can see you'd want to comment further on that. But then I was going to say that also links, though, into Elena's point that the funding of programs for male perpetrators may in fact be on the bottom of the list because it's not seen as being like the, there's not the understanding there of um, what the drivers are and the fact that there may in fact be avenues and programs that might work. So I started journalism about 25 years ago as a cadet at a regional newspaper in Queensland, a place called Toowoomba. I was maybe three months into my degree when I got a casual role at the Toowoomba Chronicle and one of my first jobs was going to court and I went to court I sat in a magistrate's court. I watched a, a local high-profile guy come up before the court. He had severely bashed his wife, left her in hospital. He walked out of that court that day with no prison time. I went back to my chief of staff and I said, 
this is a good story. This guy, he's a businessman, everyone knows him. He's bashed his wife. He hasn't got any jail time. It's a good story. And he said to me, no, it's not. It's just domestic violence. You know, no one cares. And I stood in that office and argued with him for a half an hour. I'd only been in the gig for a few weeks. I could have lost my job, but I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And eventually they put it on the front page. They put it on the front page and that was great. The next day I go to court and the magistrate says, is the journalist from the Toowoomba Chronicle here? And I was like, yep, I'm here. And he blasted me for putting that story in the paper. He was like, this is a personal issue. It should never have been reported. I didn't break the law. I, did, I wasn't in contempt, contempt. It wasn't subjudice. But no one wanted to talk about it. 25 years later, I write on gendered violence all the time. So we as an industry have come such a long way from that, you know, not being able to report, being discouraged, being told off by a magistrate to being able to file stories. So we're doing what we can. The thing is that like everything, change is slow and we need more um, opportunities for journalists to learn and we need more opportunities for editors to change how we approach this. Journalist Cheryl Moody on Big Ideas on ABCRN, a panel on how to stop male violence. I'm Natasha Mitchell, and now here's lawyer Elena Campbell on the media's role in reporting on violence. I would just add one tiny thing there that um, definitely editors, sub-editors, you know, there's so many people involved in this process. And I remember I work, I do a lot of work in relation to young people who use violence at home and who are generally victim survivors of violence themselves. And we did a story with a journo who I was pretty sure got it. I was absolutely sure um, that she got it and she spoke to a range of people with whom I work regularly as well as with me. But then the headline comes out, more teens beating parents or bashing parents or something which was just literally the opposite of what we talked about and what the approach needed to be and I rang I was upset and I rang her and I told her that this needed to change and she said I'm sorry it was my sub-editor and I said not good enough and so she went back and they got it changed because it's online but of course you know partly the damage was done in terms of both how people initially were seeing that, but also the discouragement to my colleagues, other people who work in this field all the time and are working with very traumatised, vulnerable young people and put themselves out there and felt that they had not been listened to or, mis- or heard. So it's a real challenge and there are journos working really, really hard. I can tell a lot of other stories, but that's just one example. Oh, no, I was wondering whether you wanted to comment further on the issues about access to behaviour change programs. But also, as we've been pointing out here, as several people have pointed out, the very different ways in which male violence can play out in relation to different relationships, different victims and so on. I think in terms of access to intervention services, I was just thinking as you were speaking about that and thinking about how we have such an awful piecemeal system here in Victoria. So you have a community services provider doing the men's behaviour change program, they'll often wait list and they'll see someone in about six months time, someone else doing a few episodes of alcohol and drug treatment and typically your simple episode is about four sessions and that um, is nowhere near enough for a man who uses something like say methamphetamine or alcohol. 
you have other people addressing mental health, largely within the private space. Lots of these clients can't actually afford private psychology fees. So you can see how many pieces of the puzzle that there are. Lots of them are not trauma-informed. Lots of them are not even family violence-informed. I've had clients contact the CAT team who've asked incredibly intrusive questions and it's very clear that the CAT team, despite being a primary mental health service, has absolutely no idea about family violence, doesn't know how to assess, isn't actually picking up on the glaring risk factors right there, saying that there's serious risk to these kids here. So, so many places for people to fall through the cracks, and I think that's one of my frustrations with the broader mental health system, but also the correctional system. We have a lot more services coming online, coming out after a couple of the Royal Commissions, but I am curious about whether that's just going to create further cracks in the system as well, so more spaces that people can move between. And that's certainly what I see happening within the family violence space. I also know that with other types of problem behaviours, so stalking, sex offending, typically we have a single type of program at a range of different intensities. So for a low-risk offender, you'll, you'll often need quite a low-intensity program, typically delivered by corrections. Here we have, what, 10, 20 service providers providing men's behaviour change programs, all of varying lengths and different types of quality, I would probably be saying. Nothing's really been systematized. It feels like it's quite a large flaw in terms of how we manage this, and it feels like it's just been left again to women's services organizations to mop up the problem. Those aren't my, my words, but that's how it feels like, broadly speaking, political will sits, thinking of it as, as a problem that just needs to be fixed and just, just needs to go away because it's sucking up resources without really understanding how absolutely vital all of these issues are just in terms of basic health, well-being, quality of life, mental health. When you were talking about women, um, the perspective of women, you know, sort of um, picking up the pieces, the thing is that we can't change gendered violence without men being a key part. They have to be part. They are the solution. Women aren't the solution. Women, women are there to pick up the pieces. So how do we get men to the table and how do we get them talking about that? That's a great question and one I'd love to throw to some of the men who are here in this audience later. It's one that I've struggled with myself and obviously the men I work with tend to be perpetrators and tend to be very entrenched in their, in their own minimization. And there's a lot of I didn't do that, it wasn't that bad, I wasn't violent, because there's a lot of shame often around their behaviours, I think. And that's a defensive way of trying to disengage from this difficult issue. In terms of getting men involved, I think having spaces where men can be part of the conversation, maybe non-punitive, non-shaming conversations, and hopefully we've done and we are doing a good job here today of not saying that you're you're a man and you're bad because there are lots of good men who want to affect change. I think it's important though for men to be taking some accountability for the process of creating change because it's always women having these conversations, well, almost always. And when you're calling out sexual violence, gendered violence, whether it's online or on social media, I tend to find that the louder voices are often women, often younger women. 
I'm really curious about why men aren't participating in this, whether it's a sense of I'm a good bloke, so I don't do that, and that's not a me problem, maybe. Um, or I don't want to weigh in because I feel like this isn't appropriate. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing out a couple of hypotheses. I think it's partly to do with the lack of opportunity for complexity and nuance that Sherelle was talking about. And certainly in the kind of wider media, particularly at the moment, you know, often when you see leaps of progress, like the Me Too movement, and you see a range of kind of social movement towards in one direction, you can, it's pretty kind of standard to see a push back the other way. So on the one hand, we've got real progress in the way these issues are talked about. And then on the other hand, we've got these blokes like Andrew Tate. And that's how kind of progress sort of works and that people push back against things that they feel challenge them. But it's a relatively simple step to take people through the discussion. Well, you know, the whole kind of hashtag not all men and just like, well, yes, honey, not all, we know not all men use violence, but most people who use violence are men. All men have an opportunity to do something about it. So that sort of sense of actually empowering people rather than feeling sort of blaming or feeling like, yes, you just need to stand aside or you, you better be a bystander, but there's, it's more than that. I think there's a phrase called, an expression called an upstander or something. But it's more about actually sort of being involved and being in the discussion and absolutely, maybe I live in a nice cosy bubble, but some of the best feminists I know are men, both in terms of colleagues and friends and family. I've got four kids and I think the biggest feminist of them all and that's saying something for my three daughters is my youngest son. It's about kind of creating these discussions from the beginning about how these complexities work and that it's not about sort of assuming or or assigning blame by default of a gender. And I also want to acknowledge that we're having a very binary discussion tonight um, in terms of gender. That's something that perhaps we can explore in a little bit. Those are great points. I think when we are thinking about how we form our initial beliefs and and our stances, we don't turn to the media We learn from people around us, our parents, our teachers. Very, very simple things like Christmas lunch, women are off cooking, men are off drinking. So common for me to see pictures on my Facebook feed after Christmas. And I always get really angry and I sometimes call it out because that's just such a stereotype that still continues to happen. And those are the kinds of really subtle things that actually start to pigeonhole men and women. Yeah, so I do think we need a ground-up approach from the time a baby's born, really. So if we start now, maybe we can get the next generation. I mean, it makes me think about... The thing is that we're all connected um, in some way to some form of media. So whether it's TikTok or Facebook, Twitter, or, you know, your mainstream media outlets. And so are children. Children are connected. So even if they're learning they've got really good role models at home and they're, and they're, you know, they're learning and they're, they're growing into really fine, young, honest people. The problem is that they're surrounded by this onslaught of media and people like Andrew Tate cut through. Like this guy has billions of followers and if you have young people consuming that, 
every day and their friends are consuming it, then they're going to be influenced. So it's kind of like you're pushing against the tide, really. That saying, peeing in the wind. And I mean, that's a really gross saying. And it's a very male saying. But I feel like sometimes it's like that. We see this all the time. There are other Jordan Peterson. I have a, a friend who is male who, is, who would say he's the most feminist male he knows. He's an awesome bloke. Loves Jordan Peterson. Loves this guy. Cannot see the problem. And that surprises me, you know? That is so awful. He's also a clinical psychologist, and I do apologise on behalf of all psychologists. And some of what he says is so problematic. But like you, I know lots and lots of men who are nice, decent men who don't, who just don't seem to be attuned to some of these issues and don't think about these things in the way we do. And I, yeah, it seems like there's a gender blindness sometimes. I have to say, so I started documenting um, the killing of women and children in 2015. So I've been doing it for a little while. And um, I've documented more than 2,500 deaths in that time. When I first started doing this, I was always being told by men um, and by, by women as well that I needed to um, be gentler and kinder in my conversations around gendered violence because I was offending men. And that really pissed me off. Like I was really, no, guys can be accountable for their own thoughts and feelings and their own views. Surely they, they can be accountable. And after all these years, like I'm actually at a point where I'm thinking, you know, you attract more bees with honey than salt. So maybe all of that time, I myself was having the wrong approach to this and maybe it's actually time for people like me, for other feminists and activists in this area to find a new way of um, having this conversation with guys because we're not cutting through, we're scaring them off. One of the things that I often see when I do work with perpetrators is, yep, exactly how to how to have the conversations because if I turn to a person and say, you're engaging in family violence, that is bad, they are going to say some very rude words back to me. And that's just not going to work. So it's really about how to start to have the conversation, how to get some buy-in as well. So what do you want to change and how is this going to benefit you? And usually the answer is, well, I'll stop going to prison. So I can then grab onto that and say, well, I would also like you to not go to prison anymore. So it sounds like we're on the same page here. And how do we get this to work? And that's my you know, buy-in. But yeah, you do have to, or at least I, I find in, in the work I do that I have to really watch my approach very carefully, be really attuned to how I communicate and speak because there's a lot of sensitivity. And as soon as I sound harsh, I lose a client. And so I clamp down on my own emotion and I think of the person who's suffering, so, so the victim survivor, and that's what gets me through. I think just this conversation alone, let alone Ahana's original point about how we're talking about a really wide range of behaviour, but we're also talking about a very wide range of circumstances in which conversations can occur. For example, and I didn't come here to be a you know poster child for MBCPs, but one of the things that men's behaviour change programs do and, ha and have learned to do is to ask simple questions called motivational interviewing. Is essentially say, what kind of man do you want to be? 
what kind of father do you want to be in particular? That's where progress can be seen and, pro and intervention programs have been developed that are family and domestic violence informed out of there to really work with men who are fathers who have used violence and want to have a better relationship with their kids. But it's incredi incredibly complex and it's all tied up with people's experience, prior experiences, particularly, you know, in their families of origin. But we're also talking about a very wide spectrum of people. So generally, if you think about the most sort of pointy end or the repeat offenders that police target, for example, have extensive histories, not just of trauma, but of institutionalisation. And I remember sitting at a kind of police task force or something, and there was a presentation by Victoria Police where they, you know, tracked the histories of repeat offenders. And it was mentioned as a sort of almost an aside that every single one of those 25 or whatever it was had been in the child protection system, been in out-of-home care. But this was not sort of clicking as oh, that tells us something, maybe that's actually something that we need, what we need to do. It was just an incidental kind of aside. And I said, but that's where the opportunity lies because people are so damaged that they're getting to adulthood and using really, really terrible behaviours. But then when we're talking about, you know, conversations with men who have experienced nothing but privilege, you know, I don't know the background of Andrew Tater and whoever these other people are, we can assume potentially that it hasn't been just a history of lifelong trauma. So then we're, then we're having a different conversation. That's when we're talking about entitlement. So we need, to, we need to be looking at who's in front of us, what the situation is, and finding that pragmatic spot in the middle. You know, I understand what Ahan is saying about finding you know, that way forward where we both, all right, we've both got an interest. I think it goes to the other scale, you know, end of the spectrum as well. You know, what's your interest in what kind of man you want to be? What kind of community do you want your children, if you have any, to grow up in and find that sort of shared ground? I don't think you have to be too sweet about it. You know, I think you can be practical and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just the lawyer in me, I don't know. But I think that there are ways to have, okay, let's just look at what's in front of us. What do we need to do and together to get to a better place? It's very it's I think the social sphere is actually the most difficult place to have the conversations. I think that if we can get men um, coming along on this ride with women, the reality is that men stand to benefit almost more than women because we know that men are more likely to be killed, four times more likely to be killed than a woman in Australia. And almost always the person who will kill them is another male. So we're just like just looking at that one very small aspect of society, the violent side. If we can reduce um, toxic masculinity and the drivers that underpin it, which underpin violence, we save men's lives. So we save four times the number of lives than women. The other thing is that if we can fix this, we give men more opportunity. So we give men more opportunity to father their children, to not be the wage earner, to be the person who can be a stay-at-home dad or take time off to be there for his child. We give them opportunity to um, have access to a healthier lifestyle. There's just 
a million things that we can do for men if we can get men on this conversation and on this journey and helping to make change. I think that that's a great point. If we can start to frame this maybe as a men's health issue, and I know that that's a brave statement given that we are talking about essentially women sometimes losing their lives, but this is but this is also a issue around men's mental health, physical health, rates of, say, death and loneliness. These are all things that we know that men are currently struggling with. And I think there are, there are very similar drivers maybe around how men communicate, socialize, engage with emotion, engage with people that drive all of these difficulties. So, yeah, some really great points there, I think. So I'm just thinking we'll need to wind up in a moment, but I'm, I've been really struck by the differences in approach um, from some of our speakers focusing particularly on, for example, individual responses, working with individuals, identifying the differences for individuals and what works specifically for an individual, and then that big picture um, of the society that we want to have, uh, the society which up until now we see as still normalising and excusing male violence. So I, I'm just thinking as a, as a last point, perhaps if each of you would like to make a comment um, on what would you see as being uh, a good approach? What's an approach that we should be thinking about? What gives us some hope in, in terms of um, not necessarily solutions, but responses at least uh, to male violence? I love that everyone's looking at me. Um, <laughs> I am a psychologist, but I'm not a mind reader and I don't have all the answers. Look, I'm going to be really boring and say I think this is going to be a step at a time. I think easy to become very discouraged and to feel like we aren't making any forward movement. But I think if we look at the work that's been done, even even the work your amazing team's doing um, over at the Centre for Innovative Justice, so there's a lot of work that's, that's happening within the space that is starting to affect change across the different sectors and I'm hoping that this will be a bit of a snowball effect where a little bit of change in, in a certain sector starts and then we start taking the conversation more more you know seriously and that the pieces of the puzzle start to come together. So I guess the hope for me is that we are talking about this, we are talking about this openly, we are talking about this in a very nuanced way which we haven't done in the past and there are lots of people doing some really great work in this space and Lots of people fighting the good fight. Uh, I would say that the first thing that we need to do is uh, make sure that our services and responses are working together as a coordinated system and certainly not equating activity with effectiveness because that's what we sort of keep on doing. Throughput, KPIs, output, how many clients did you see, how many matters did you hear, on we go. Not thinking about, well, what happens once we've referred someone or once once we've imposed an order, has it been useful? Did it stop the violence? Did they address the issues that we asked them to address? So there's a lot more work that we can do in that area. But the other area that I think, and I think I just want to acknowledge this in this conversation, um, but it's a bit of something that's been playing out in the media a lot, is the issue, the sort of heightened responses to the emerging prominence and of people um, questioning or, or transitioning in terms of gender identity and sexuality and sex identity. Because I think one of the fascinating issue, um, 
points about that issue is that in all of the kind of positioning of people on one side against the other and calling people names like trans exclusionary, you know, whatever they are, radical feminists and the other names that get thrown around, completely lose the fact that the people who get off scot-free in this conversation are the people who occupy the places of greatest privilege and always have, that is white male middle class men. They're sitting pretty when everybody else is pointing fingers at each other and throwing, you know, protesting at each other. So I think we need to say that we need to start questioning power wherever it resides, power and privilege wherever it resides, and that is about race, it's about class, it's about um, disability, it's about sexuality, it's about gender identity. And once we start dismantling, pulling on all of the threads, it helps us to address the toxicity that sits at the sort of top of that apex. I don't, um, I don't actually see that I would have an answer to fixing the problem, but I do know that from a journalist's perspective that um, I would like to see myself and my colleagues report more from a, a trauma-informed um, perspective to, to really try to hone in on the victim's stories. Um, certainly it's okay to background a perpetrator, but I don't think that the perpetrator should be the be-all and end-all of each story. I think we need to put the effort in to, um, to be able to profile victims because we need to give um, a face to the epidemic. Um, and I think that perhaps there is space for governments, certainly the federal government, to put aside funding that um, allows journalists going through university and, and those who are already working in the field to access um, trauma-informed um, reporting that specifically, you know, teaches them how to report in this area because it's a very complex area to report in and we can get things really wrong. I've been doing it for a long time and I still get things wrong. There's always something to learn. And if you've got journalists who have never had that kind of training, then how are they supposed to know? How are we supposed to change that? So yeah, I think that, you know, we need funding for everything, um, but certainly I would like to see funding in that area as well as funding for everything else. RMIT Professor of Law, Bronwyn Naylor, ending that roundtable about ways to combat male violence. And if this is a conversation that has caused you any distress, there are places to reach out. 1800RESPECT or 1800 737 732 or Google 1800 Respect. 13 Yarn, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander crisis support line, that's 13 Yarn or 139276. Men's Line Australia, 1800 78 9978 or Lifeline 131114. There's always help. If you'd like others to hear Big Ideas, you can point them to the ABC Listen app. Just search for and click on Big Ideas, hit the love heart next to follow, and that way we come to you whenever a new episode lands. Great to have your company today. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.